Well, thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, first thing I'll get out of the way is this is not a trick on your ears. I really do sound this redneck. I can't help it. Um, I'm originally from Alabama, and it shows through when I do public speaking or I try to read out loud. Um, so y'all bear with me as we read Scripture together because you can thank the Alabama public school system for what you get. Um, now, Brian stole most of my intro where, you know, normally when you go to a new church and you're going to fill a pulpit for somebody, you, you have to tell about yourself because people want to know who they're hearing from. Uh, not that I'm any kind of a big deal, but Brian did that work for me so I can cut uh, that part of my intro for you this morning. I do want to take the time to honor um, your leadership uh, here at Convergence Church, your elders, for um, letting me have their pulpit tonight. That's a big deal. Um, it's a very big deal. Uh, and unfortunately, it doesn't get treated as the big deal it should sometimes. And we end up with pulpits being filled with fluff and puff messages instead of being brought the authoritative Word of God. So I thank your leadership. I honor them as men of God. And uh, I do take seriously the opportunity to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to open up with a word of prayer. And then I'll ask you as I start talking to go ahead and find Luke chapter 5. We'll be in verses 33 through 39. That'll be Luke chapter 5, 33 through 39. Our God and our Father, we, we love you. And we thank you that you saw fit to give us another day to be alive today. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to bring your holy word um, this evening at Convergence Church. And Father, I say your word on purpose because I don't want my word to be what comes through, Father. If it be anything of me, Father, I pray that it fall on deaf ears. Father, I pray that your word um, is delivered as you saw fit to deliver it. I pray that it's delivered with conviction and authority. Father, I pray that as I gather with your people, we are a people that love your word. So, Father, we give you all the, play, all the praise, all the honor, and the glory. It's in the name of Christ Jesus, I pray. Amen. All right, so let's, uh, let's catch up because you guys are my favorite kind of church. You're an expositional uh, church. You pick a book of the Bible and you go through it line by line, which makes it so easy if you ever have to fill in for somebody because you can look at what the last chunk of Scripture was, and you can know what the guy the week before you preached about. It makes it so easy on the pastor when you're expositional. Um, you know, expository preaching is by far my favorite method of preaching, so once again, I honor your, your elders and your uh, pastors for choosing that method. Um, what I want to do first is to kind of recap where you guys were last week and what has led up to the moment that we're going to read about together today. The event you'll see today is still part of the tax collector dinner that Luke wrote about in verses 27 through 32. Remember that Matthew has just thrown an outright party for Jesus. This was not a, hey, I'll have you over and we'll throw something in the oven. This was an, an all-out, money-spent, people-invited shindig that they are throwing for Jesus. Um, what we're going to see today is a conversation that started in 27 through 32 is at this party where we have the Pharisees who once again come to Jesus. They have questions for him, but they're not real questions. 
These are nothing more than try to uh, set up gotcha moment is what the Pharisees are trying to do. And they weren't satisfied with the first set of questions that they asked. So now they're about to ask another question to try to paint Jesus in a corner in front of all of these people. So today we will see the second part of that conversation as that second question is asked. Now Jesus has just gotten done with a a mic drop kind of moment on the Pharisees. Um, Jesus is calling them out about their self-righteousness. And in his wording, what he does is he looks at them and says, I've not come to save the righteous. I've came to save the unrighteous. Right? And we know that this is almost tongue-in-cheek. We know Jesus does not look at the Pharisees is actually being righteous people. All right, this is a dig. If anything, this is Jesus throwing what actually should be considered a holy amount of shade at the Pharisees um, because of how they walk around with their chest poked out in a self-righteous manner. So we're going to see today that the Pharisees were obviously not, they were not happy with that first answer when Jesus came back at them with the self-righteous quote. And they're going to ask this second question, and that's what we'll pick up today. So what I'll ask you to do is to stand for the reading of God's Word, and we'll be in Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. Luke chapter 5, 33 through 39, and the Word of God says, And they said to him, The disciples of John... Oh, y'all read them together. I'm sorry. I was about to just take off. All right. Y'all belling me out because this is my this is the part I hate is reading out loud in front of people. You're helping me out. Thank you. We will read together. My apologies. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new garment. Peace will fall. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins and no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Man, I just thought reading by myself was out loud. Out loud was hard. Trying to keep up with you guys made it even harder. And I'm mic'd up. So this is recorded for history to hear me fumbling around the Word of God. Alright, thank you for bearing with me on that. So, the title of today's message is Good Things Done for the Wrong Reason Make the Good Things Wrong. They make the good things wrong. And what we're going to do is we're going to go line by line uh, in this chunk of Scripture to see the events that are happening here and break down what we might think this is talking about versus what this is actually talking about. So let's look at verse 33 together. Don't read this with me because you'll trip me up. 
Verse 33, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. This part of the conversation starts out with a lot of talk about fasting. And look, fasting is important. I'm not downgrading what fasting is, but that is not what this encounter is really about. It's easy to read this and come away from it and immediately think that the main thing we need to pull away from this is a greater understanding of fasting. The the Pharisees, they they don't really care what Jesus thinks about fasting. All right? I know they're asking a question based around fasting, but they have zero concern what Christ actually thinks about fasting. Like I said in my intro, this is more of a gotcha setup kind of question. See, the Pharisees, they have a very twisted idea of fasting, and they want to use their views of fasting against Jesus. But Jesus is going to point to something much greater than fasting. So think about this with me. You see in verse 33, what's trying to happen here is the Pharisees want to take um, the topic of fasting, all right? And they're trying to take what would have been considered the biggest supporters of Jesus at this point in his ministry would have been John the Baptist and his disciples. So they're trying to create division amongst the people who were at Matthew's party. They're saying, now wait a minute, these guys over here, they said, we do it this way. That's your fan club. They're saying that that we should do it this way, and your, your people don't do that. They're trying to cause division. They're trying to show that that this Jesus guy and these people that are following him, they can't even get their own story straight. Why would we listen to this guy? His biggest supporters are saying, he said do that, but he don't even do it. That's what's happening here. The disciples of John, to them, fasting was a way of life. John himself and those who followed him, his disciples, they practiced self-denial at all costs. That's why we hear about John living in the wilderness. We hear him living off the land. He's described as a wild man, right? This is not an act for them. John and his people, they're not fasting out of any desire for public praise. This is not some form of of just uh, self-righteousness, some showy attitude so they can be seen as fasting. They didn't fast from any kind of legalistic standpoint. They fasted because they saw their self-denial as a way of taming the flesh and bringing honor and worship to God. The why they fasted is what's important, not the fact that they fasted. See, the Pharisees only want to point to the fact they fast. They don't want to spend any time on the why they fast. But the Pharisees see that they have a pattern. As we as you go through any gospel, you're going to see that the Pharisees constantly they try to show how smart they are. They think they're a big deal, and it always backfires on them. The Pharisees are the ones who actually have come up with the idea of mandatory fasting. All right, they are who has implemented a a law on their people, the people that are underneath their 
they're shepherding, that you must fast on these certain days, right? That's, that's nowhere in Levitical law. And actually, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, fasting was only mandated one day a year. It was at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the National Day of Atonement for Israel. Other than that, there was no mandatory fasting that could be found in the law of Moses. Now, there obviously were other recorded times of fasting. Fasting was a common practice, right? We see fasting um, in times of mourning and lament in the Old Testament. We see fasting from prophets who are seeking um, a word of knowledge from God. We see fasting from entire people groups, right? As as people groups, mainly Israel, as they see they're about to be invaded or they're about to die of starvation from famine, they would fast together as a people to seek the favor of God. So fasting is obviously a thing, but it's not a mandated thing like the Pharisees have turned this into. The Pharisees have turned fasting into nothing more than a public display of self-righteousness. They see fasting as a way to let the rest of the people know how holy I am and how unholy you are. It's one more thing that they can walk around with their chest puffed out about trying to make themselves the big deal. I want to get, read you a quote here from one of my all-time favorite theologians, R.C. Sproul. Sproul's talking about this exact um, piece of scripture and Sproul says that the Pharisees took something that was a you may and they turned it into something that they saw as a you must they took what should be a you may it's a good thing you probably want to be doing some of this in your walk with the Lord they took that and said no this is a thing and you better do it on these two days a week this is another example of when man tries to dictate God's law. This is where we get the idea of legalism from. Right? This is one of the most clear New Testament examples of how man will take something that is meant for good and he'll pervert it. He'll mess it up. Right? See, legalism, just so everybody's operating under the same definition. Legalism is where we take something that isn't bad. Most of the time, it's actually something that's pretty good. It's pretty spiritually healthy for you to be a part of. And we take this thing that's not mandated. It's definitely not salvific. But then we take it out of that box that it should be in and we put it in our legalism box and we say, well, no, it's something you've got to do now. And then we take this thing and we rise it up to the point that we treat it as if it were salvific, right? That, that is what legalism is, is we're taking things that are you mays and we're turning them into you musts, right? If that makes sense to everybody, hopefully you're tracking with it. So next we're going to go to verses 34 and 35. And what I want to tell you kind of a... a, a a preface to this part is to think about this. Feast when it's time to feast. 
and fast when it's time to fast. Feast when it's time, fast when it's time. So let's look at verses 34 and 35 together, church. And 34 starts with, And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Verses 34 and 35, to go back to my my sidekick hero guy that I wish I could have hung out with before he passed, R.C. Sproul. Sproul had a thing when he was teaching people how to preach. And Sproul would tell you as the pastor, it's your job to find what he would call the heartbeat of the text. And when you find the heartbeat of the text, you need to press firmly into the heartbeat of it. Because without finding the heartbeat of the text, you're not getting the full scope of the text. Verses 34 and 35, this is what we would say is the heartbeat of the text. Now this text can be a little bit, or these two verses can be a little bit confusing because we're used to, especially in the Gospels, seeing parables, right? And we're about to see two parables uh, when we get to 36, 37, 38, right? But 34 and 35 are not parables and they shouldn't be read as parables, right? These are analogies, very similar to parables, right? I'm not saying they're a completely different thing, but hermeneutically, we don't treat these two the exact same way. So verses 34 and 35, to actually have any kind of real understanding of this analogy which is hard for us to do, right? Because we're, we're reading things from the context of a first century A.D. Jew, right? Their culture, their society, their norms, and we're trying to apply 21st century Americanism to it, right? And it doesn't always compute. There's not always a one-to-one right there for us uh, to compare things to. So we have to be careful here to see this in the context to which it was written and who it was written to. So to understand this analogy, you're going to need an understanding of a first century Jewish wedding, what it would have looked like, what would they have been doing, and you would need a working knowledge to understand how Israel was constantly compared with God, or I shouldn't say compared, they were, they were paired together with God as bride and groom. Bride and groom is a common theme in the Old Testament, and it, that theme carries over obviously into the New Testament, right? But these people would have really understood these analogies, right? So we need to think as they would think. So what would a first century Jewish wedding look like? Well, it was, it was a multiple day party, all right? It was a time of celebration. There would have been days upon days where if you were invited to this, to this wedding, you were invited to this celebration, that you would have been around if you were with the bride's family, you'd have been around the bride. If you were with the groom's family, you'd have been around the groom. And you would have enjoyed each other. You would have spent quality time with each other. It wasn't like we do a wedding now where it's like about three hours total and then everybody goes their separate ways, right? This is what I meant. Well, we can't, we can't see this analogy and think like 21st century Americans. We need to think like 1st century Hebrews, Right? So, think about what Jesus is saying here. 
why is he comparing this to being the bridegroom at a wedding party? Think about first century Jerusalem and how they would have celebrated it. And then the next thing you need to know is obviously, like we said, about how they would have heard the verbiage about the people being the bride of the Father, right? Or they would have said Yahweh. So the guests that are here, they're here out of joy and celebration. They're not here to fast. That would have been the opposite of what a first century Hebrew would have done. Uh, if you invited me to your son's wedding, I would not dare show up acting like it is time to lament or to be sorrowful. I would not be looking at you going, when are we going to break our fast? I would be showing up with a smile on my face to celebrate with you. Right? That's the context that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is reminding this is not the time for sorrow and lament. This is not the time that we seek for, for revelation from God about what we should do for the Philistines trying to... None of that is happening. It doesn't fit the context of what Christ is talking about. Next, you would need an understanding of the imagery, like we said before, with the bride and the Lord. This imagery is so important because the Jews hearing this conversation, they would have been intimately familiar with the picture that Jesus is painting with His words. They would have not needed any explanation behind this analogy. See, the, the main thing that Jesus is trying to get them to understand is this. This is the heart of the text that needs to be pushed down on. The promised bridegroom that had been prophesied to come and save His people has finally come. He is here. The marking, the time stamp of all of human history that starts the new covenant is here in the flesh to complete His Father's will. That is what Christ is trying to get these people to understand. And the religious leaders are standing face to face with the Messiah who's delivering these truths, but they're so spiritually blind, they're so spiritually deaf, deaf that they can't see it. It's not time for the twelve to fast and lament and be sorrowful. It's time for them to celebrate with their king. Here's another thing to think about. Think about your timetable of events in the Gospels. Think specifically about those roughly three, three and a half years of recording we have that detail the earthly ministry of Christ. We've not gotten to the point yet where the twelve would have had a working knowledge of exactly what was going to happen to Christ. That's not happened yet in the timeline. Now, have there been hints given that the Son of Man would suffer? Would they have known the Isaiah text? Of course they would. But we see as we read through the book of Luke, they're not really putting two and two together because they're shocked a couple of chapters from now when Jesus starts talking about His death, burial, and resurrection. They're not operating, and Jesus knows this, they're not operating out of 
any condition that would have given them cause to be sorrowful. Now, the day will come when it's time for them to fast, and they record it. We see fasting as we get to the book of Acts and forward. That day will come that they will need the spiritual discipline of fasting. But that day is not at hand yet. So once again, culturally speaking, and timeline, chronologically speaking, the call for fasting from the Pharisees, it has no place here. It doesn't fit. We're trying to square peg a round hole. Let's look at verse 36. Verse 36 is going to start two different parables. And what I would tell you between 36 and 38 is to think about this. Christ plus nothing equals everything. Christ plus nothing equals everything. Verse 36 starts with two different quick parables that Jesus tells to drive His point home even deeper. And in verse 36, we see the first of these two parables in the parable of the torn garment. Now, bear with me on this one, all right? Because this can get confusing. The old is talking about the new, and the new is talking about the old. And it's easy to get your wires crossed on this one, but just bear with me. Jesus is drawing a parallel between the old and the new covenant in verse 36. The old garments is being coupled with a new patch. Alright? And think about old and new patches paralleled with old and new covenants. Alright? It's important that that's where our mind goes as we read this. So let me read this to you. Um, We're just going to read verse 36 alone right here. It says, He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new garment and the piece from the new will not match the old. So hear that in your head and start replacing the words garments with the words covenant. Right? That's what's being driven home here. See, you couldn't simply attach a new piece of cloth to the old garment. What would happen to it? As it's sewn together, right? And we, 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 we fixed the patch, right? What happens the first time the garment gets wet and it's laid out in Middle Eastern heat to dry? Y'all know this. How many of you bought that t-shirt that fit just right until you washed it in hot water that first time? And then you ended up with a smedium in the bottom of your belly sticking out. Right? Right? Now that same concept, that same concept applies to this parable of the torn garment. There's, there is no marrying of the old to the new. Because what ends up happening? You actually ruin both. You've done yourself no favors. And Christ is using this analogy to drive that point home. Think about this. The old covenant, the covenant of works, and the new covenant, the covenant of grace. The old covenant had been given to these people for millennia. 
all the way tracing back to when it starts when Moses comes down from Sinai. And there's laws given. And then years after that, hundreds of years after that, we start getting into the Levitical laws, all of those laws being written down and being formalized and being distributed to the Israelites. And those laws were meant to set them apart from the rest of the world, from the pagans. These laws are the wall around God's people that say you should look, you should smell, you should feel different than the rest of the world. That's the old covenant. My salvation is tied to can I keep these laws? Can I sacrifice at the right time? Can I do this? Can I do that? Can I not eat this? Can I not mix that? Old covenant. And we're going to try to take that, a covenant of works, and we're going to try to graft it on to a covenant of grace. Guys, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Remember, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Think about this. Just a few pages, I shouldn't say a few pages, depending on how big the text is in your Bible. But for some of you with regular print Bibles, not too far from here, if you keep flipping forward, you're going to come to the book of Galatians. That's literally what Paul's talking about. This same argument is going to be carried all the way to where Paul finds the, or, uh, founds the church in Galatia, and he has to write back to him because the Judaizers have showed up. And the Judaizers have told these Gentiles, yes, you need this Jesus guy, you need this new covenant, you need this finished blood, but you also need to be circumcised. You also need to follow these food laws. You also need the this and the this and the this. They were saying that yes, this Jesus is important, but what He did isn't technically good enough to make you right with the Father unless we can take what He did and we can take what our traditions are and we can somehow marry them together. That is how you will see salvation and be made right in the eyes of God. This is the exact same argument that Jesus is fighting against right here. Let's look at verses 37 and 38. Verse 37 and 38 are where we're going to get our wineskin parable. 37 starts with, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst and the skins uh, will burst the skin and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Now, if there was any parable, that these people would have just grabbed a hold of and they would have known it, it's this one, all right? This is the one. These people knew wine. They knew how to make it. They knew how to make it taste good. They knew how to make it taste bad. They knew how to make it cheap. And they knew how to make it well. These people knew wine. And contrary to popular Baptist lore, Welcher's grape juice did not exist in 30 to 33 A.D. Oh, all right? We're actually talking about making real wine here, all right? And there's a reason that you need to know that because you're going to hear people say, oh, they were talking about unfermented wine. Well, actually, no, they weren't, and we can prove it in the text. Let's talk about the process of what's going on here. We take an animal skin and we make a wine skin. 
Think about a canteen, like a really fancy canteen meant to hold wine. Well, what do, what do animal skins do? When you, when, you, when you tan the hide of a deer skin or a, or a bear skin, what do you have to do? You have to stretch it. You have to get it to its desired shape where it's not going to stretch anymore. Well, that's what they would do when they would make wine skins. Well, guess what? They wouldn't take the wine skin and fill it all the way completely to the top. Do you know why? They had to leave room in it because as wine ferments and it be, does become alcohol, right, there's, there's gases that are released and expansion happens within that wine skin. So if you took a wine skin, old wine, if you took an old wine skin, it's already been stretched all it can stretch. If I pour brand new wine into the old wine skin, what's the brand new wine going to do? It's going to ferment. It's going to expand. And if my wine skin has no more room to do this, what's going to happen to it? It's going to burst. Now, not only do you not have your canteen, you don't have any wine to drink. You're having a bad day if you put new wine into old wine skins. Now, we know this is a parable, right? So what's the parallel from the parable? Think about the old and the new covenant. That Christ is literally making the exact same point he just made one verse prior with the torn garment parable. Christ is driving home the point that you cannot take what is made perfect in the finished work of the new covenant and take these old things and stick them in. Because guess what's going to happen? It's going to bust. And now, now you have nothing but a mess. You definitely don't have salvation. You definitely don't have that. Because you have ruined it by trying to marry what was the old into the new. The new covenant by its very nature is pure and perfect. It needs no help in being effective. It does not need the works of your Old Testament law to be effective. Because guys, this is the thing we have to ask ourselves. If there were anything you could do, if there were anything you could keep perfect and pure on your own, then Jesus' death on the cross is the most tragic, unjust death of all time. It serves no purpose. It serves no purpose if I could do it without Him. That's why we call the new covenant the covenant of grace because it is merely an act of grace and love from God the Father that He would send God the Son to die the death meant for you and I that we could be made right. The new covenant needs nothing from the old. And that is what Christ is pointing them to. Verse 39 is where we're end our text today. In verse 39, it says, And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Once again, it gets a little confusing because here, the, he's really, the old wine he's talking about is the new covenant, right? So the old is new, new is old. It's easy to get your wires crossed. But track with me here. The older the wine, the sweeter it tasted. 
the smoother it went down, the more perfected it was. It was revered. It cost more. It was harder to make. It took more effort. And if you tasted the older, better made, pure wine, what person in their right mind would take a drink of that and then say, no, give me that cheap stuff? Christ is driving the point home. He did it in His analogy when He compared everything to being the bridegroom in the wedding party. He's now backed it up two more times with two parables that drive the same point home. So we go back to what is the heartbeat of the text? Christ is saying, keep the main thing the main thing. I am the main thing. You do not need the other lesser things when the main thing is here for you. So let's talk about some application. Let's talk about some application. The main point that Christ has delivered in this text is that it's not fasting that's the big deal. It's Him. He is the big deal. It's only Him that is represented as the wedding party in His analogy. It's only Him. The people that are not Christ that are in this encounter, they're basically listed as guests of the wedding. They're not the big deal. He is the big deal. He's the reason they gather. He's the reason they celebrate. He is the bridegroom. And with that being said, I want to ask you a, a serious question as we, we get into the deeper part of application point of discernment. Do we fall victim to our own big dealness like the Pharisees did? Do we see our individual actions the way they saw their individual actions, their fasting? Do we see our individual actions is so important that they're on par with what the bridegroom did for us. Now I know the Sunday school answer is to immediately say no. No, we don't. That's everybody's Sunday school answer, right? But I want to walk you through four questions that back up that main question of do we fall victim to the same big deal once again, I know, guys, this, this text, it's tempting to think that this is all about fasting, but it's not. Here's the key thing this text is proving to you. Man will always try to self-atone for his sins until he finally realizes, until it finally clicks in him. that the only thing that can atone for them was the precious blood of Christ. It shows how lackluster we see sin. That we could see sin as something we could fix. It shows the, the, the downgrading of the heaviness of sin when we look at it and say, I could fast enough to get rid of that. I could do my whatever big enough 
to get rid of that one. It's self-atonement versus the atonement. That's what they're doing here. So I'm going to ask you four questions about how do we self-atone? What are we guilty of? And when I say we, I'm saying we on purpose because I'm in the boat with you. I'm not saying you, I'm saying we. Question one would be, how do we view our church attendance and how we serve the local church? Is that something that we walk around with our chest poked out no different than how the Pharisees walked around about how they fast and you don't? They fast better than you do, right? They're a big deal and you're not. How do we treat our church attendance? Do we, do we treat it as this is some kind of heaven points system that I can check the box that I ain't missed church in 47 weeks? And 46 out of them 47 weeks, I got there early to help them set flags up. Why? I'm glad you're coming to church. I'm glad you're willing to show up in hell. But why are you doing it? Why? What are you doing different about your church attendance or church serving? that doesn't put you in the same posture of walking around with your chest poked out on Tuesdays and Thursdays because it's mandatory fast day and you want to let everybody know how often you are at doing it. Question two. How about your tithing? Is our tithing coming from a place of quiet, thoughtful giving that flows from our hearts down to our bank accounts and we cheerfully give to the church? Or is tithing something we're doing because secretly we feel so guilty about sins of our past we're trying to write a check? Is this self-atoning? Or are we trusting in the atoning? Question three. Is our quiet time with the Lord, is it driven by self-denial? Like John the Baptist. Is our quiet time, do we view that as something that, you know what, I am willing to give up some sleep. I'm willing to give up some free time. I'm willing to miss my TV show. I'm willing to not do whatever it is that's on my fun to-do list. Not so I can just tell people I did it. We all know that guy. You, you all know that person. Yeah, I read my Bible today. I read, I read 13 chapters today, and I journaled four of them, and then I had two hours of prayer time. Hey, great, if that's what you did. But if the whole reason you're doing this is so you can tell me about it, then you've missed the whole point of doing it. Are, are, we, are we trying to be in this because we love who this teaches us about? Are we trying to be in this because you know you owe a debt and you hadn't figured out yet that you're not the one who can pay it? And then the fourth and final one, what about the time we spend evangelizing? What about the time we spend going to the park or going to downtown or going to the Pride Festival or going to the abortion clinic and sharing the Word of God? Do we do that because we want to be seen doing it? Do we do that because we've got an abortion in our past or same-sex attraction, something we struggled with, or I've 
didn't save myself for marriage and lived a life that's horribly shameful before the eyes of God, and me going to do that is my way of trying to make it right before the Father? Is that why we go do it? Or do we do it because we're trying to bring honor and glory to our Father that has loved us so much He didn't just see fit to give us life. He saw us fit. He saw it fit to save us from the ultimate death. Do I do I do these things just to do them? Or do I do these things because I love my Father? Now catch this. I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. Alright? That can be a danger when you have this kind of sermon. I'm not telling you that any of these things are bad. In fact, they're all great. They're good things. They're things that every Bible-believing, Christ-following, self-denying person that's trying to kill their flesh and live for God should be doing. These are all good and great things that I pray every one of you is a part of. But ask yourself, are you doing these things in an attempt to pay the check for something that you can't afford the price tag in the first place. That's what I'm trying to get you to think about. Not to not do, but to ask yourself, why do? Remember, the new, the new covenant has come. The covenant of grace is here. This is where the great exchange happens. The exchange where he who knew no sin became sin that he might die a sinner's death in your place, in my place, that we deserve to be nailed to a tree. This is the work that we get to take a part of. This isn't anything we could pay for with any kind of self-righteous act we could ever muster. What we do should be tied to our love for Christ Jesus. And even that love is still a gift that's evidence of that new covenant. And we can say that because the Word of God tells us. The only reason we loved Him was He loved us first. It's still that act of grace. It's still not anything you could say you did. All the sin, guilt in the world couldn't lead you to deny your flesh and pick up your cross daily and bear it. It's only through Him. So I'll close with this. Christ uses an analogy of the marriage supper. And I'm here to tell you that the marriage supper is coming. That if you're truly in Christ Jesus, you will be there. And you won't be fasting. You will be there in celebration. You will be there in a state of absolute joy. There will be a great feast and you will dine with your king. You will not be there as a servant running plates back and forth. You will not be there as a cook. You will not be there as a doorman checking invitations. You will get to sit at the table with your king and dine. You will enjoy. And it will not be a time for fasting or lament. You will eat, you will drink, and you will praise 
our Lord, and He will tell you, eat and enjoy me forever if you truly belong to Him. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we love You. And I thank You so much that I don't have to try to figure out how to put a new patch on an old wineskin or how to put it on a garment or how to worry about how to mate up my wannabe pile of good deeds, Father, that are actually nothing but dirty rags to You. I don't have to worry about how to try to mate that with the finished work of Your Son. I can rest and I can enjoy and I can find favor in knowing that before the foundation of this earth, Father, You saw fit to choose me. Father, if I were You, I wouldn't choose me. And that's how I know You're God. If I were You, Father, I would see all the mess-ups I've done, all the times that I've turned my nose up to You, all the times that I have picked my flesh over Your Word, and I would have nothing to do with me, Father. But the fact that You still pursue me, the fact that You would still let me be a part of Your ministry, of Your plan to take Your Gospel to the darkest of places, it just proves to me yet again that You are God. So Father, I pray for all those here. I pray for their families, their children, their children's children. Father, that You would use this church in a mighty way in this community. That it would start down at that little baseball field and it would spread all the way across Charlotte, Father. That light would penetrate darkness. That generations of children would be raised to fear You. Raised to build Your church. Raised to carry Your Word out into this world. Father, I pray these things in the holy name of Christ. Amen.